gentlemen, friends, both of you and all, welcome to this Fuds on Film podcast. This is the dulcet tones of Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by the reassuring baritone, I would say, of Drew Tavendale. Hello. And the frankly terrifying falsetto of Craig Eastman. <laughs> there will be no pain. As always, answers on a postcard. Um, today, for no appreciably good reason, we're going to talk about uh, modern day films that have been shot in black and white, so some reasonably recent films that have either chosen for aesthetic or perhaps budgetary reasons uh, to go down the route of showing up in black and white as they're put on at the cinema or home formats. We thought that would be an interesting thing to look at and see how it's been used either for effect or just out of sheer economical necessity and see how that's uh, affected the films, what they have done. Yeah, that's it. That's, um, I'm probably you can put these um, films or films that have been shot in black and white or I think more accurately shot in colour and converted to black and white for the majority of them. You can put them into maybe four groups, four reasons, as you say, Scott, for budgetary constraints, for evocation of an era, for simply aesthetic reasons. Have I said that one twice, possibly? <laughs> no, but you said budgetary constraints. Aesthetic reasons. Well, if, that if, is a <laughs> short memory, man. <laughs> <laughs> if my memory is failing, we're all doomed, Craig. <laughs> 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 you are my backup. <laughs> yes, for aesthetic reasons, budgetary constraints to maybe to evoke a particular type of era and also perhaps the most artificial, but to try to recreate a particular look very specifically of an era. And I think we cover most of those and perhaps overlap between films quite well. I just wanted to mention just now that we are aware that there are some other obvious contenders in here. For instance, Clark's. Clark's comes into budgetary constraint. You have the likes of Control, which is a film we're all very fond of that would very much come under aesthetic reasons. It's a very artful film. And then The Artist, which is one of the most artificial films we've seen in a good long time. But there are, in fact, while Black and White's heyday is long since past, in the last 30 years at least, there's still been a, a large number of films. So we just had to pick a good selection from what's the last 20 years really going yeah. back to Schindler's List and if you think there's some obvious things missing there then you can feel free to um, shout at your radio or whatever it is you're doing right now and it's not that this isn't topical because uh, I don't think it was I don't think our discussion of this was precipitated by it but it seems timely that um, you've got the whole thing going on with that Mad Max Chrome edition right now as well that people seem to be g'd up about yeah i think um scott had mentioned that a while ago but that was more we'd already decided more or less to do this mm -hmm. and that was just something that was coming around at the same time but yes unlike a lot of our themed episodes this isn't prompted by anything in particular we're just a lot of films that we have regard for and happen to be in black and white so don't look for deeper meaning in this one. Well, you can. You just struggle to find it. Yeah. You spend your time is entirely up to you. <laughs> yes, futile as it may be, we, we cannot dictate. Well, we can, but we can't really make you listen because the, the cops tend to frown on that. But Yes. Shall we kick things off? So we'll start this off today with a look at Pi, uh, Darren Aronofsky's 1998 debut film. Mm, pie. Uh, delicious, delicious pie. Uh, it's a film that I think I've always going to struggle to view dispassionately because, as we sort of touched on with some of our other favourite artists, it's one of these movies that I watched in my relatively formative years of film viewing, and it's another one of these films that kind of pushes it at the envelope of what I'd considered a film could do at the time. 
which puts it up into the exalted company of the likes of Takeshi Kitano's Violent Cop and uh, Shinya, Shinya Tsukamoto's um, Iron Man, Tetsuo, that kind of stuff. Uh, so despite its unarguable weirdness, it's a film I'm hugely fond of. It's shot on a shoestring budget of about $60,000, which perhaps more than any other factor accounts for its remarkable look. It follows genius mathematician Max Cohen, played by Sean Collette, who's working on a theory that the stock market is a natural system, and like all natural systems, must have a pattern that he can find with the aid of his Judy-rig supercomputer Euclid. But Max's genius comes at a price, as he's plagued with crippling headaches that seem to be getting worse the closer he gets to his goal, along with a side order of unsettling hallucinations. His paranoia isn't helped by mysterious corporate body uh, that's surveilling him under the orders of Macy Dawson, uh, Pamela Hart's character, and they're trying to bring him under their wing to benefit from his work, should he succeed. He's fending them off for now, but he has a chance meeting with Ben Schenkman's Lenny Meyer, a Jewish numerologist, who introduces him to the Kabbalah, the Torah numerology bonkerism that his cult of Hasidic Jews have been toiling away at. Uh, Max's interest is piqued when Lenny starts talking about their ultimate aim of finding a certain 216 number string, which happens to be the exact length of an error string that Euclid put out in his latest number-crunching run, before giving one nonsensical stock pick and falling over on its face. Coincidence, as his mentor Sol Robson, uh, played by Mark Magolis, would have it, but it turns out that this wildly improbable stock price was correct. Being so close, he's finally won over by Macy's offer of an advanced classified computer processor, which Max uses to run through the Torah as a different dataset, again yielding a crash computer and that 216-character numeric string that now can't be printed, with Max resorting to pen and paper before another crippling headache incapacitates him and has him passing out. And what follows in the final act is a dizzying chain of events, imagery and proclamations about the nature of the number that do not make a lick of sense, <laughs> but nonetheless never fails to carry, carry me along with them despite their ludicrosity, all leading to the, by that point, seemingly obvious migraine control technique of a DIY trepanning with a power drill. <laughs> um, As you do. Yes. Uh, as he did. Um, it's, it's a rare instance where a consistently overpowering visual and sonic assault on a viewer just didn't just turn me off of the film completely, but instead drew me in uh, by the nature of this episode. We'll be talking a lot about visuals, I suppose, but particular mention must first be made of ex-pop-will-eat-itself member Clint Mansell's pounding driving score that provides a manic baseline for the film to dance jerkily to. It's incredible work, and it's the start of a great new career for him. Uh, the intensity is reflected in Sean Gallet's performance, which is commendably manic. The supporting cast largely do well with what we've got. Also, some characters are wildly underwritten, such as Samia Shoaib's uh, next-door neighbour, Devi, who's also saddled with some of the clunkiest lines in the script mm -hmm. and that I've ever heard, <laughs> particularly science, the pursuit of knowledge. Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> However, uh, yeah, they're all very much the support, and the spotlight's pretty firmly on uh, Sean Gallet. Uh, the film is shot in black and white reversal stock, which is pretty difficult to work with, but it does give it a very high contrast, gritty, punchy feel uh, that suits the tone of the film perfectly. Aronor Aronofsky says he was inspired by the graphic novels of Sin City, and it's interesting to see how close you can come to that in the camera as opposed to the reams of digital manipulation route that Robert mm. Rodriguez was forced down. I didn't know that. That is quite interesting, actually. I'm sure the wall of sound and the breakneck editing base, along with some pretty esoteric subject matter, means that this is very much not a film for everyone. For want of a less slippery term, it's a bit too film school projecty for huge mass market appeal, 
but this certainly showcases the assured hand and attention to detail of Aronofsky right from the start of his career. So if you liked his later, more familiar films such as The Wrestler or Black Swan, Pai goes to show that there's a great reward in diving back into his back catalogue. Indeed. In fact, it was your good self who introduced me to Pai all those years, uh, years ago, Scott, and it's not a film that I would um, even have remotely entertained watching had mm. you not uh, recommended it, and I'm very, very glad you did for, for all of the reasons that you have stated above. For me, the thing that works best about it, that, as you say, the, the visuals and the score working in conjunction, and it, I don't know, it could well be something that puts a, a, a great many viewers off, but there's this wonderful um, sense of overbearing, sort of oppressive atmosphere yeah. that, you know, gradually tends towards this crescendo at the end of the film as, as Max loses grip on his uh, sanity, complements that absolutely perfectly. And like you say, it's a very film school aesthetic. It's, it looks like it's been shot on, never mind, like 16 or 8 millimeter film stock. It looks like yeah. it's, looks like it's been shot on, like, let's, let's invent a new film stock. Let's have one and a half millimeter film stock. <laughs> it's um, quite astonishingly grainy. Yeah. It really is. And, and ironically enough, it's probably a complete nightmare for, um, for modern encoding techniques. But it's, uh, yeah, perhaps counterintuitively, visually, it's in, incredibly rich for something that's been shot on that stock in that format. And, um, I, it's kind of I, I find it hard to imagine what this film would be if if it if it weren't subject to that aesthetic as you say possibly I mean immediately only through um budgetary necessity but I perhaps this sounds weird but I can't imagine what pie would be if it were a color movie does that make yeah. sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't think it does. It does, yeah. But I, I still find it, I know that like you say that there's still, you know, that it sort of runs away with itself towards the end, but I want to say of Aronofsky's works, I still I still find this one of the most rewarding when I come back. At, you know, every five or six years I come back and I watch Pi again, and I find it just as rewarding as I did the first time, if, if not increasingly so with, with repeat viewings, and it's, it's a really remarkable film. Yeah, I find it uh, remarkable how little it's changed, uh, at least in terms yeah. of the way it doesn't, doesn't feel like it's aged. No, uh, is kind of what I mean by that. It always feels very contemporary and fresh. Yeah, despite it being, you know, what twenty-ish years old. Yeah, uh, close to it. Yeah. But I think that's one of those side effects we see quite often with films that were um, have been produced in a very hand-to-mouth guerrilla uh, kind of way. And again, yeah. the, the particular aesthetic of this film probably lends itself to that. Is they're not necessarily burdened with all the trappings that would typically um, date a movie normally. So yeah, in, in many respects, this still looks like it could have been. You know, shot and released yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's been well observed by many people over many years that art um, thrives on restriction, mm. creativity thrives on restriction. I think that's quite evident in Pi. Yeah, because I think had they had the money to shoot this in colour and wanted to go that, yes, it wouldn't have been the same film. It does feel timeless, like you say, because yeah, it doesn't not because the the hue, the high grain and the close up camera work for a lot of it and all those such things, but just losing all the saturation, the colour, you can't date it as easily. There's no shorthand mm. for the cars and clothes and street signs and things that would give it away otherwise. Mm. You have to be careful about putting too much deliberation into that because, mm. for instance, very famously, Lindsay Anderson's film If, which changes from colour to black and white partway through the film, and 
at the time, critics saying, oh, it's a stroke of genius and it's reflecting the character's change of personality, etc. It's like, no, they just ran out of money. <laughs> and maybe that they locked in then to actually that making a better film in the end. But yes, they, they just ran out of money and it wasn't any artistic choice there. Here, they didn't have the money to do almost anything because $68,000 is nothing mm. for making a film, particularly when they're shooting in New York City, which is not a cheap place. But and I think it's actually, it's given them... Possibly by luck, but yes, a very, very distinctive look to the film, a timelessness. As for the film itself, for me though, I am not as enamoured of it as either of you, but I certainly find it very interesting. The sort of central mystery tends to hook me, um, even if it is um, numerology and therefore start graving bonkers. But it's um, it's really an interesting hook in there, and the the destruction of the main character's mind, uh, coupled with Clint Mansell's score and the the sound design really is very compelling. I like that film. I think you should watch that film. I also like <laughs> that film and think you should watch that film. Drew's outvoted. <laughs> I sort of like that film and think you should probably watch that film, so it's not really much of an outvote. <laughs> Nothing. No no amount of backpedaling will save you from the crocodile pit now, Drew. <laughs> Crank that lever. I'm just going to do a Roger Moore and run across the crocodile pit. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, yes. And then the ultimate f*** you, you'll do it wearing crocodile shoes. While playing Jeremy Nail's crocodile shoes, which will probably put the t- crocodiles in a terrible temper, a, making it more risky for me. On, a, you on an iPod nestled in a, in a fine crocodile skin case. <laughs> Bollocks to you, crocodiles. Um, shall I talk about the good German rather than crocodiles? Why not? <laughs> Seamless. <laughs> Seamless transition. Uh, adapted for the screen from Joseph Cannon's novel of the same name, the good German sees Steven Soderbergh operating at a creative Lagrange point midway between his multiplex-pleasing popcorn fare and those ultra-wanky vanity pieces he occasionally barfs up, <laughs> such as our old friend Full Frontal. <laughs> oh, sorry. Hi- <laughs> sorry, it just does that. I'm sorry. Uh, taking place in 1945, George Clooney plays Jake Giesmer, an American journalist who has arrived in Berlin following the Allied victory in Europe with the intention of covering the Potsdam Conference. Whilst there, Giesmer becomes caught up in the murder of his driver, an opportunistic motor pool serviceman by the name of Tully, Toby Maguire, who has been using war-torn Berlin as a playground for monetary gain through prostitution and various black market activities. Conveniently enough, Tully has been pimping for a German Jew by the name of Lena Brandt, Kate Blanchett, who just happens to have been romantically involved with Jake, and whose husband Emil is a former secretary to one of Germany's top rocket scientists, Franz Bettmann. With the Americans and the Russians in a desperate race to secure Germany's rocket technology, Emil poses a threat in that he is to testify against Bettmann in war court, meaning he risks rendering his former boss unemployable by the US military. Torn between his journalistic duty to expose Bettmann's war crimes and the urge to secure safe passage out of Germany for his former lover... Giesmer becomes embroiled in a dangerous game between the Russians and two wings of the US military, none of whom can be trusted and all of whom have their own opportunistic motives. Taking its inspiration from classic studio noir, such as, most notably, I suppose, Casablanca, The Good German is certainly an intriguing prospect on paper, an attempt to shoot a period movie using the technology of the respective era, meaning in this instance the movie has been shot through vintage prime lenses using incandescent light, uh, boom microphones, studio backlot locations and rear projection, as well as employing such gimmicks as optical wipes and period stock footage. 
It's an immediately beguiling aesthetic, uh, though fears that it may simply render proceedings kitsch are soon allayed by the sight of Toby Maguire enthusiastically engaging a prostitute doggy style, followed swiftly by some thoroughly modern application of profanity and occasional physical and sexual violence that, while somewhat sanitised through the grayscale palette, are nonetheless markedly modern in how viscerally they are portrayed. If all of this sounds a little gimmicky, then you'd probably be right, though that in itself is not necessarily the problem with the application of this aesthetic. The Good German as a story has all the requirements for a very good thriller indeed, and in service of that story, the film's production design could very well have enhanced proceedings and let the movie a unique style. Unfortunately, the impression I get is that the story has very much been selected in order to serve the aesthetic, and while it is initially very engaging, that infatuation Soderbergh clearly has with his quest for authenticity soon wears thin. In fairness to the cast, they are all clearly as game as Soderbergh, and little if any of the blame for the good German's failure as entertainment can reasonably be laid at their feet. The fault lies in a script that affords little for the cast to do other than look alternately pensive, smouldering and startled against varying angles of harsh lighting, with markedly less thought given over to fleshing out their characters than, for example, weighing up the optimal degree of glamour glow to apply to any given scene. <laughs> Having said that, Kate Blanchett's admirable attempt at channeling Marlena Dietrich soon sticks out like a sore thumb, as does the performance of the ever-game Robin Weigert, and Toby the Manchild Maguire was surely in the running for least appropriately cast actor of 2006. <laughs> Now, I'm never going to barrack a movie simply for having pursued a particular goal to distraction. Um, certainly in the case of this, it appears initially at least to be an admirable goal um, and a creative one. But in the case of The Good German, one must consider the potential of the material and the talent involved. And in doing so, it's impossible not to call it out as a huge disappointment. Uh, by no means the worst of Soderbergh's works. Did I mention full frontal? The good German does highlight his occasional propensity for overlooking the point of this whole cinematic endeavour, which is to say providing entertainment uh, with a heavy heart, not a heave heart as I've got written here in my, my notes <laughs> I must tell you I must tell you to avoid. I think the one word that stuck out in that whole review for me was gimmicky because that's really the, the overwhelming sense that I get from this film is that oh. it's trying a bit too hard with this whole mm-hmm. uh, gimmickry and you, you kind of see it not just from the, the film stock or the way that the home format release has been in uh, 4.3 rather than yeah. I think even the, 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 thing, the cinematic one I think was back in the Academy ratio maybe or something like that it certainly yeah. wasn't full widescreen but no, no, yeah no. it was Academy I think no I should know was it just one was it one six, six? I don't think it was 4.3 but it was definitely not full widescreen anyway um, no it was but it was, it was black bar on either side yeah um, yeah, and, and, and this, the, the very definite stunt casting of Toby Maguire in a role that just does not seem fit for him at all. Uh, it, there's, there's lots of little keys in here that kind of gives give away the fact that it's trying so very, very hard to do something. And like I say, that does just kind of get in the way of everything else, which and by, and by the time you kind of get over that hurdle, uh, by the time you've got past that first sort of half hour, 45 minutes where it's... You know, oh, this is this is all something very new and exciting. Then, mm. it, it, or old and exciting, perhaps would be a better way of putting it. But it doesn't really have much of a story to back it up. And nope. uh, this, yeah, I, I found myself my attention wanders by the end of it. I, I don't hate it by any stretch of the imagination. I, I enjoy it well enough, for actually, for for all its flaws. It's uh, so kind of an interesting watch and certainly something I can appreciate as I watch it. But I don't really like it all that much. No. Uh, it's, I actually, for all, for all that it's not that complex of a story, I actually found myself going back um, 
and and losing my way just as I was taking notes as I was watching it. I kind of, I found myself actually quite dis- distracted by the aesthetic of all. And there were yeah. a couple of points where I had to sort of rewind ten minutes because I suddenly realised, wait a minute, what's what's going on again here? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think it really is. Uh, uh, it really is a case of the aesthetic having been chosen first, and then everything sort of being um, shoehorned into uh, shoehorned into that particular uh, vessel. Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad instinct. Um, I think a few years before this, you had something called, I think it was Far From Heaven, which mm. is a similar kind of idea. Didn't have the didn't quit the uh, the aesthetic quite so much, but it's the same sort of thing of trying to tell a a tale that could not be told by you know, social and studio norms at the time, trying mm-hmm. to do something, take a story that's a bit more, uh, well, edgy as or contemporary as you'd have it, uh, and putting it back in those times. And it did, probably did a better job of, you know, telling the narrative, although I can't remember actually liking that film all that much. Oh, of course not, uh, Scott. It had Dennis Quaid in it. Oh, the oh, no. charismatic actor. Oh, you had to go and inv- invoke the Quaid, Scott. Didn't you? <laughs> um, but yes, it, it, it certainly it was more focused on telling a story than the Good German, which seems more focused on nailing the aesthetic, which it does, mm-hmm. but at oh, the expense of uh, of the narrative itself. Yes, um, I actually when I watched this uh, yesterday, I found that I enjoyed it much more than I remember enjoying it in the cinema, actually. And the, the sort of central mystery, I find, I found hooked me a bit, and I was like, okay, where's this going? This is quite interesting because I couldn't remember quite how it finished. And then it just sort of peters out in a rather unsatisfying manner. But what I will say though is, for once, Kate Blanchett's accent isn't the most distracting thing in the film. <laughs> it's something of a, a minor miracle. Yes, and Toby Maguire's casting is, is an odd one. I know why. He was riding high on Spider-Man at the time. He was a big star, but he is inappropriateness. But yes, it does feel like, like you're saying, Craig, I think you too, Scott, that yes, they've, they've decided on aesthetic and they've nailed it. It looks and sounds, um, and actually the sound is a bad thing because the score here is overbearing, mm. accurate to the time, but overbearing and unpleasant. It was, it wasn't. It? it was, it was nominated. I think um, it was at least Oscar nominated. I think for the score, which is kind of yeah, baffling. Score, absolutely, yeah, because yeah. it's horrible. I mean, it's 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 accurate to so yeah. many films of that era, but it's not pleasant. No, it's that predictably brassy kind of. Um, very very bombastic yeah that's it yeah very unsophisticated yeah. kind of orchestral stuff yeah in terms of how it looks and sounds though it's accurate but it does feel to like rather than like you said Scott about wanting to tell a story that they couldn't tell in the way that the studio system the Hayes production code etc wouldn't have allowed them at the time and mm. society in general it's like oh well now we can use the c word and we can show bare breasts and, and lots of sex and things because oh that'll be great without actually adding a single thing to the story well not not even just that but it's at the point at which it throws that at you and i, th- I think the, the first indication is that scene where toby jones is uh is, is beasting someone and um toby jones that would make uh, toby jones sorry. <laughs> <laughs> toby mcguire sorry we'll talk about toby jones in another movie in a minute um <laughs> sorry toby mcguire beasting someone um it's kind of like saying ha see we th- we've thrown you a curveball there you thought this was going to be an entirely authentic sort of period piece and all it does is force you to question well well why have you chosen that aesthetic then why is yeah. why is that the thing you've chosen to to um to cross the line on is the this the you know the the sexual con 
content and the violence and the the language like you say drew dropping the c-bomb you know i don't i'd be very surprised if any of the three of us would claim to be all that troubled by the flippant use of that word in in most respects it doesn't you know we've we've grown up around it and it doesn't really hold all that much sway with us but um it really does this is one of those few instances where it felt sorely sorely out of place and really mm-hmm. unjustified it really stands out. yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's, like, it's probably the first time that I bordered on feeling offended by that word. Yeah, I, I almost felt offended too, more because, yeah, not the word, especially because we are Scottish men and in this country that that word is not like it is in any other country, apart no. from maybe Ireland, I think. It's because you can call your best friend that and it has no <laughs> negative connotation no, exactly. whatsoever. It's yeah. basically a form of punctuation, doesn't it? Yeah, because um, <laughs> so, it, it, it has a whole range of meanings here from, from friend to enemy to person. That's and it. It just means people so yes the the word doesn't bother me but in that instance it offended me in as much as it's like oh look at us look how daring we are to use this word in this context and yeah yeah but it doesn't serve the story it does nothing yeah. all this is in fact takes merit of it because it's, it's not big and it's not clever yeah, you've <laughs> set this aesthetic you're trying to recreate this feeling of a film from this time and then you're adding these things which aren't of that time and mm-hmm. i don't know it's i if you want what, to what are you trying to achieve with that yeah it it doesn't fit for me. The other thing, yes, the story was the mystery of which hooks me for a while, and then it just sort of goes nowhere. Mm, um, I got that vibe as well. Yeah, and it's probably because it's unsatisfying because the character isn't pleasant, but seems mm. to get away with it. I mean, it's potentially intriguing if you if you knock it if you if you knock it forward sort of twenty years. It could, it could be the plot of a Len Dayton novel. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's not necessarily that the the story isn't. Um, and I'd, I'd almost be quite interested to read the novel. It's not that the story doesn't have potential. It's just it's dealt with so candidly. The other thing is that they keep on making references to the crimes of the Holocaust, etc. During mm. it, okay, which has been part of the the plot of the film, but it's more the background, but. The way they're mentioned, it's so, to me, feels so crass mm-hmm. that it's like, remember this, this is important, listen. Instead of it being like, uh, like Leland Orser's character feels like, yeah, he should be some sort of create, uh, crusading prosecutor and he's the one that keeps bringing up these things. Like, okay, this could be interesting. Like, if I think if they'd focus on his character instead and him actually not just selling out or whatever it is that happens to him, whether he gets mm-hmm. beaten up or threatened or coerced in some other manner, that may have been more interest, but it just seems to like, oh, these are the things that are happening. Remember, these are horrible. Yeah. But and, and without actually adding anything to the film. Yeah, absolutely. And what's supposed to be obviously the big sort of um the big dramatic moment at the end of the film with Kate's Kate Blanchett's revelation as to what exactly it was that she she did to stay alive, which she keeps hinting at earlier in the film, um, is obviously supposed to be emotionally impactful, but really the way that the way that, that topic has been handled throughout the rest of the film, they haven't they haven't really built it properly to any where it really can have any sort of emotional resonance at the end of the film. And it's basically Kate Blanchett just saying, Yeah, I I dobbed in some Jews and turning around and getting on the plane. And how am I supposed to feel about that at this point? Because you've really not serviced those themes with probably the respect and the heft that was due throughout the rest of the film. So Yes, it should be that that should just utterly destroy George Clooney's character. Mm -hmm. That and the, the the audience should be equally devastated. Mm. Like, oh, she's the heroine, and then you find out, no, she's she's a war criminal. Too. Yeah. She should be hanged. She sold out like sixteen people, of her fellow Jews to the yeah the people Leland Dorsers after. She yeah. should be in the court as well, and it should be like a gut punch. But you get to the point. It's like, 
Yeah. yeah, well, she's kind of unpleasant anyway. I don't like her. Because um, the character, it's not much as I, I've not liked Kate Blanchett in a great many films. It's not her acting that's the issue here. It's just the character's not built enough to yeah. to merit the audience feeling enough for her to really merit understanding why Jake likes her so much. Why yeah. so now you're told, but you're never shown. And that's what that's what I mean by the you have to consider when you pass judgment in this film, you have to consider the potential. Because imagine you know, imagine the um, dramatic uh, capacity for something like that as a, as a topic and a character in the hands of an, an actress who is, um, although she's, um, I, you know, she's not, she's one of the actors that I can take or leave, to be honest with you. But she is an incredibly accomplished actor and capable of incredibly powerful performances. And what more, what more emotive material do you want to hand someone than something like that? And it falls flat on its face. Mm-hmm. It's, in, it's incredible. It's incredible how how far wide of the mark that ultimately falls. Um, it's really really bizarre. Yeah, I think maybe it comes down to the fact. Yes, um, I mentioned in their introduction the word artifice, um, mm. which could certainly as a an insult that could be levied at this. I think there's so much focus on trying to recreate this look and style. I know I'm repeating what you said earlier, but that they just didn't focus enough on the story. They've kind of mm. shoehorned the story into the setting and then it's so much a weaker film for it. Yeah, it's a real missed opportunity, to be honest. And, and But not not to detract from how, how brave an experiment it is, but yes. I think it's worth watching. Um, it's not a film I would suggest avoiding if you've not seen it. Um, no, I'm not angry at myself for having sat down and watched it today. Because but, it's um, an interesting idea. And again, it's not a terrible film and it's just it's a more of a missed opportunity it's a disappointment not a problem in that way not the highest up the list of your priorities of the movies we'll speak about today i suggest so imagine a time of fear a time where an idealistic country thought that you could just dispense with the principles of freedom in which it was purportedly founded where political freedom was thrown away and people in government could just claim without evidence that people were bad by their definition of bad and ruin their careers just by saying a thing and without any recourse to law or anything. Imagine what a horrible dystopian future that would be. Or imagine it was within the lifetime of an awful lot of people and imagine it was the United States and it was the 1950s. Oh wait, it happened. Yeah. So in the 1950s and... In some ways, things haven't changed so much now, but not quite with the witch hunt that was at the time. In the mid-1950s, the junior centre from... Oh, I forgot what state was from, Wisconsin. Is that right? That sounds about right, yeah. Yes, junior centre from Wisconsin. Joseph Joe McCarthy. Um, people need to come up with better nicknames than just shorting the first name. But, uh, <laughs> Big Joe. Infamous, um, yes, uh, he began something of a witch hunt in the 1950s against supposed communist invasion into the government and the armed forces Uh, completely of course disregarding the fact that being communist and being a soviet agent are in no way anything to do with one another whatsoever and that the united states is supposed to allow people to choose whichever political um, statements they want uh he begins this witch hunt And very few people, particularly in the media, because of the aforementioned ability of him to simply name someone and have their career ruined, nobody wants to stand up to him. And the whole Reds under the bed thing, the um, House Committee on Un-American Activities, is turning the country into some sort of right-wing police state, more or less. 
One of the few people that stood up against this, though, was the CBS television journalist Edward R. Murrow, what considered one of the greats of his profession of the 20th century. He and his CBS news programme and news team stand up to Joe McCarthy, one of the few people to do so. And it's in this era and in this particular person that George Clooney's Good Night and Good Luck is set. And first of all, you have... We get the story of uh, an airman called Milo Radulovic, who the programme decides to defend because he has been accused with evidence that no one has seen. And they think, that's not really on. This then leads to a direct attack on Senator McCarthy himself. And the film really tells the story of the struggles of the commercial pressures of a commercial broadcasting company and the integrity of journalism inside of that system. Their strong moral stance, the the fear of being found out for anything in their past, however innocuous, the misconduct of the government and the military, and the fact that sometimes one man, admittedly with support, but the fact that one man or one person um, with a principled stance can actually make a difference. This is a film shot in black and white for the evocation of an era more than anything else this time and it is it's really rather compelling. First of all um, it has a towering central performance from David Strathairn. Doesn't it just? Who is astonishing as Edward R. Murrow. He's freaking amazing in this. I, yeah. This is one of those where I'm like, why is why wasn't David Strathairn just getting all the roles after this? Oh, I know. Yeah, because um, I think before this, I only really remember David Strathairn in Sneakers, mm. the film with, where he played the blind guy in that film with Sounds Dan Aykroyd right. and Robert Redford. David, David Strathairn is so amazing in this that I genuinely thought maybe I should take up smoking just because <laughs> David Strathairn makes it look so damn good. Um, I don't know how he didn't win all the awards for this because it just proves how wrong the Academy in particular is, the mm. American Academy. But a towering centre performance by um, David Strathairn as Good night. Uh, as, as good night. <laughs> good night. Good night. <laughs> what from the Bond movie? Um. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't look as good in a cocktail dress as her, though, strangely. But yes, because um, he did. Ah, that's sorry. I got confused because when you were talking about um, why didn't he get all the roles after this, too? And then after yeah. that, he popped up again in the Born Ultimatum. I don't really remember seeing him an awful lot in between anything. No, not a great deal. But yes. So he's just, he is magnetic in this film. He's, it has been criticised as being a hagiography of Edward R. Murrow, but for most of the things that I've read and understand is that it's reasonably accurate in terms of um, his politics and the stand against the stand against McCarthy. I mean, the, the interaction with the characters are necessarily dramatised and imagined, but it's this mesmeric central performance this really enjoyable crusade against injustice really i mean the, what the injustice is doesn't really matter i was waiting on scott dropping the c-bomb again <laughs> <laughs> and then in this you have so just a really appealing aesthetic it f um without feeling too artificial it just it makes you think of that era more um beautifully shot film and some like truly iconic shots of Murrow reading the news on TV, just some like um, closely cropped frames or nice low angles. It just feels beautifully composed, uh, composed, more like still photography than film. Some parts, mm. great support from the likes of George Clooney as Fred Friendly, and Frank Langella as the boss of CBS. Maybe Ray Wise as Don Helenbeck isn't the best thing, but 
honest, that's maybe my fault because I can only ever think of Ray Wise as Leland Palmer. <laughs> um, yep. But it's um, it's really interesting. Yes, it's a populist film in some ways, and I think George Clooney's politics are perhaps betrayed a little. But again, with what was happening at the time, there's really not much of another side to it. There, there was what McCarthy was doing, and then there was what decent people would do. Yeah, exactly. Um, there was there was the bizarre cognitive dissonance that afflicted the uh, the supposedly patriotic right at that point, in which we we see raising its uh, ugly head again, um, even as we speak. Um, and as you say, the same people um, <laughs> who realised that you know shouting that you're a patriot and then doing everything <laughs> everything that you possibly can to um, undermine the constitution that you mm-hmm. proclaim to love so much exactly, yes. doesn't really make all that much sense from from yes. any viewpoint land of the free but only with what we tell you you can be free to do yes and again i mean it's not a criticism i make of it at all but i can understand that people would call it perhaps a little preachy particularly being yeah. bookended as it is by Edward R. Murrow's speech to the Radio and Television News Directors Association, where he was basically saying, Look, you don't just don't sit in your bum caping slack jawed at the TV, allow it to actually entertain you. Uh, not just entertain, rather, not entertain, um, educate you, inf- inform, and um, motivate you. Mm. Uh, but again, he said it, so it's entirely legitimate to put in a film about him. And it's not exactly a point that could be argued with strongly. As the rest, it's, it's a really appealing film with a hell of a cast, in fact. Indeed. Um, I even like a cast that includes the likes of Robert Downey Jr., who's relegated to third-string character, basically. But even if the rest of the film were bad, which it by mo- no means is, it's worth watching simply for David Strathairn alone. He's phenomenal in this. Indeed. And I think probably of all the movies that we'll speak about here, certainly it gets my vote for the most successful um, the most successful implementation of the aesthetic in the service of the actual um, the actual story. Yeah, it's the one that stands out for me is the one that actually uses the dynamic range best. I think it's the, mm. the one that's really taken advantage of the, the darks and the, the lights in this one. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's very beautifully shot, very attractively shot. Yeah, from, from beginning to end, it's lit to within an inch of its life. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 And it helps to, um, the technical aspect, it was shot on a, it's shot in colour film, but on a grayscale set, mm-hmm. which allowed the colour grading and post-production to be done more easily. It's, that sort of preparation rather than just oh, shooting colour and do it afterwards yeah. I think has made a big difference to how successfully achieved that. Yeah, I've got to give some credit to uh, young George Clooney as writer and director of this. It's, uh, it wasn't his debut performance, but it wasn't, it wasn't far off it was it? Was he, the, was, um, the, um, the Confessions of a Dangerous Mind was his first, one, was first wasn't it? This was his yeah. second. Yes and I think this was this one was more of a passion project I think because um, he had studied journalism at university. His father was a journalist too, and so that sort and, of thing was in his mind and from his upbringing. I think that yeah. Uh, plus so. that, along with his politics, because it's very easy to draw the uh, parallels between that and the uh, the terrorism uh, kerfuffles that have been going on with the you know the Patriot Act and and all these other kind of. Uh, mm. Liberty infringing, uh, yeah, constitution infringing things that were going wrong at the time as well. So that, remember, of that course, he just well. come off of Syriana too after doing um, before doing this. So I think that may have helped put that into his head more deeply as well. It, but it does make me wonder what might have um, what might have become of the good German if Clooney had been at the reins. Yeah, <laughs> rather than just in it. Yeah, no, it's an incredibly engaging film, and not just for that um, amazing central performance, Drew. 
but that is certainly reason enough in and of itself for you to uh, to watch this. If for some reason you've been sitting on the fence on this one. Yes, I concur. Very very enjoyable film. And uh, I suppose, provided your politics lead a certain way, I suspect if they don't, then uh, you may be a, bit, a little bit infuriated by the uh, author tracks going propaganda. But you don't understand. The Reds were there. They were under our beds. <laughs> So this brings us to Schindler's List, and I guess I should make a confession. Uh, before preparing for this podcast, I hadn't actually seen Schindler's List. Not because I doubted in any way that it would be a very good movie, but because while I'm no World War II scholar, I'm quite aware of what the atrocities committed on the Jewish people by the Nazis, and mm. the three-hour explanation of that seemed to be a recipe for wrist-cutting. Um, I'm pleased to see that my spidey sense is not altogether inaccurate on this one, as Spielberg's opus, probably Magnum, at very least uh, Calipo or Cornetto, is indeed <laughs> both very good and very depressing. Nazis were bad. Hitler was bad. Now, for those not familiar with this, this particular slice of Nazi madness, we travel to annexed Krakow, Poland, where the Jews are soon forced from their homes and crowded into a ghetto. Meanwhile, Nazi party member Oskar Schindler, played by Liam Neeson, arrives with the intention of making money. After elaborately smoozing the ranking Nazis, he's allowed to open up an enamelware factory with a staff composed of Jews forced, uh, subject to forced labour. He quickly finds local official Itzhak Stern, Ben Kingsley, to take on the actual management of operations as well as help, help finance the purchase of the factory, Schindler's investment terms being better than the Nazis' innovative total forfeiture current account. While initially Schindler seems more concerned with profits than working conditions, he at least turns a blind eye when Stern starts bringing in more workers to protect him from being sent to concentration camps. However, his attitude starts changing once Eamon Goeth, uh, Ralph Fiennes' character, uh, shows up to run the recently built labour camp. Um, quite aside from his charming character Peccadillo of arbitrarily shooting prisoners, his order to liquidate the Krakow ghetto, which is quite the charming euphemism for mass murder, uh, marks the inflection point in Schindler caring more about his fellow humans than Reichsmarks. As the war rumbles on and the conditions for the Jewish people get continually worse, Schindler continues to find ways to spare as many as he can from the horrors of the extermination camps, eventually going so far as to open the world's least productive munitions factory at his hometown in what's now the Czech Republic. He spends all of his money on colossal bribes to Goth to relocate workers on the titular list to this new work camp, keeping some 1,000 people alive that otherwise would most likely have perished at Auschwitz. Given the subject matter, it is in no way in enjoyable film. Harrowing would be a more apt term. Uh, by the end of this I was well and truly harrowed. Harrowed af manut. Charming village that. Uh, we can however find a great many things to appreciate. Stop making me laugh about the Holocaust man. <laughs> <laughs> While there's not a bad performance on screen, of course it's Liam Neeson, Ralph Fiennes and Ben Kingsley that deservedly take the mind here. The historical detail is remarkable and never looks anything other than completely convincing. Neeson, hard as it is to fathom now, was not a particularly familiar face back in 1993, except, of course, to those who'd seen Sam Raimi's thematically similar Darkman, <laughs> or a few supporting roles, and he certainly gives a star-making performance here. He portrays well Schindler's heel-face turn, and the double act with Ben Kingsley swings between entertaining and touching on a time. Naturally, it's Ralph Fiennes' character who casts the bigger shadow, playing a character that would seem to be cartoonishly evil and entirely unbelievable were there not sufficient evidence to confirm that Eamon Goeth was indeed a murderous psychopath of the lowest order. And 
as a hateful avatar of evil, he's pretty compelling, uh, particularly the scenes with his poor, tormented maid. Now, I don't know if this is the definitive horror Holocaust film, to be honest with you. It is, after all, a tale concerned with a small victory amongst the colossal revolting extermination, but that's a story that's better told by history and documentaries rather than narrative fiction. Mm -hmm. This is, like the film's occasional use of colour, about finding some life and light amongst the dark and the death. Regarding which, while that child with the red coat has become an enduring motif of the film, and uh, focusing down to the plight of one innocent in particular can make it easier to understand the horrors than when applied to a mass of humanity, uh, it's a little bit cheesy for my taste. Um, mm. An up, an upmarket cheese for sure, but cheese nonetheless. But I think that's probably more that the effect has been diminished by about a million selective colour smartphone apps. Uh, but these, well, I mean, they're not even really quibbles aside. Uh, there's no reason not to give Schindler's List the plaudits that it deserves. It's one of those rare Oscar winners that don't leave me scratching my head and wondering why it's better than such and such a film or whatever. Although both such and such and whatever were fine films. Um, <laughs> but no, it's it's a, a tremendously affecting and uh, upsetting and wonderful piece of uh, filmmaking. Uh, enjoyable, no, but it's certainly important. It's not a date movie, um, is it? <laughs> no. no. Uh, but yes, it's... Uh, just an incredible work of cinema and uh, yeah, as I say, rightly deserves every plaudit that has already been heaped upon it. Yes, um, it's one of those of iconic films that I think without ever having seen a lot of people know a lot about, mm. but when you do watch it, and it'd been a long time since I'd seen it when I watched it last week it's a reminder of, yeah, just how, how accomplished a piece of filmmaking it is it's refreshingly free of Spielberg's usual weakness for yeah. overt sentimentality. Maybe the girl in the red coat is the, the one time it really rears its head um, because that just didn't work for me. It didn't really add anything it, because there was already so much horrible there with touches of humanity that that wasn't necessary. But I don't suppose it really detracts from the film. And what the film does have in spades, though, instead of sentimentality, is emotion. And it's, it's yeah, it's not an easy watch. But it's it's a worthwhile film. It's a worthy film, um, and but also not one of those worthy but dull ones because it is intelligently leavened with humour throughout. Because it's not just look at all these horrible things happening; it's like, these are happening to people, and they're people who are foolish or bewildered or scared or trying to survive, and they're still keeping their sense of humour sometimes. All of those things just make it a more compelling film because it's showing real people. And then when you see what's happening to these real people, that makes it all the more affecting. Although, mm. to be honest, I'm not sure how much more affected you could be by the fact that this person looks a bit different and let's kill six million of them. But yes, Liam Neeson really was made into a star by this film. He's fantastic. For me, though, what unhinged and psychotic is Ralph Fiennes is, and his performance is fantastic. Mm. And the, the word you use, Scott, cartoonish, is spot on because the cart is too much. It's like, this person can't be real, despite the fact that he was real mm. yeah. um, and finds does a really good job of, of portraying him. For me, the standout performance is Ben Kingsley as Eachak Stern. Ben Kingsley is a fine actor, but he has, he has two a, <laughs> <laughs> a well-regarded propensity as to chew the scenery. Now, for some actors, great actors, um, full-on scenery chewing mode is actually when they're best, notably Daniel Day-Lewis. He very much um, is the king of that camp. No, I'd say it's but, Cage. Yeah, <laughs> but um, and I mean, no, um, yeah, Kingsley does have a broad range. Just look at him as um, Trevor in Iron Man Three. <laughs> but yeah, his his best performances for me tend to come when he is 
more calm and reserved. And as Ishak's turn, he doesn't even speak so much, but he he emotes so much just with his eyes and the his facial expressions. That card is incredibly sympathetic and it's just an absolutely stunning performance in an extremely well-crafted film. Schindler's List is, a, is obviously a monumental piece of um, filmmaking with one or two minor caveats, which I think you've covered. Uh, but I haven't watched it since history class in high school. Um, I'm not sure history class is necessarily where a piece of Hollywood filmmaking belongs, but this is probably as close as something like that is going to get to being legitimised by <laughs> by by education. But yeah, for the reasons that you spoke of earlier, it's just it's a film which enjoyable is not the right word. Uh, it's a film that can be appreciated uh, for its its craft and obviously for the uh, the central issues that it, it deals with. Uh, but for that reason, I've never felt compelled to come back and, and uh, view it again because obviously it is an incredibly overbearing topic. And it is even, you know, even now with, with 70 years of uh, hindsight, it's still quite difficult to parse what actually happened and the fact that characters like Goeth found themselves operating freely within a framework that absolutely legitimised their uh, their psychopathy, uh, for for want of a better word. And it's just it's just mm-hmm. it's still very very difficult viewing, or rather, sorry, it was very difficult viewing at the time, and I suspect it would be just as difficult viewing now. And yeah. you know that that side of humanity, I think, a lot like Private Ryan after it, uh, although Private Ryan sort of tended more towards the um, some of the pitfalls of of Spielberg's technique that you uh, you mentioned Drew, or I think maybe both of you mentioned but like Private Ryan after it it's a film that I think probably everybody should watch Yeah. but uh, thereafter I mean there's only so many times I need to be reminded of how low we have stooped <laughs> in the history of our, our species and you know the Holocaust being perhaps well certainly within living memory the most egregious example of it but you know uh, also historically um, still up up there with the easily up there in the top five um, acts of depraved uh, humanity so yeah it's not something that I necessarily would ever consider coming back to as a, as a piece of entertainment and I suspect you know what the next time I watch this film it might be with my children. I found that it wasn't so difficult to watch the last time and I think part of that is just that while obviously what it's about is disgusting and shocking having like watched like the excellent BBC documentary Auschwitz Nazis and the Final Solution that sort of thing that I'm not inured to it but it's maybe a bit less shocking because I've seen so many mm. documentaries and films of the years that it's it takes the edge off it a little um, I hope it doesn't sound like, make me sound like an uncaring monster that's not the case no, not but, at all I mean I feel broadly uh, the same way I think again but it's I think the touches of humanity in it do actually make it I'm loath to use the word entertaining it's not quite the right bearable. word but it's not again bearable sounds like it's a chore to watch mm. which it isn't um, it's difficult to watch but it's not a chore it's rewarding but the yeah, the touches of humanity help a lot the wee bits of humour uh, it's one of those films and we've talked before about the, the strange creeping up of running times or even standard things like comedies nowadays but this is one of those films that really merits its plus three hour running time um, it doesn't feel like it either the humanity helps there and also it does come in waves quite well just in a way that really works your emotions but it doesn't feel manipulative so much when you have um, good 
um, like randomly executing people just because you know he's bored, so he gets his sniper rifle out. And then you follow that up with the the quite unbearably tense journey into the showers at Auschwitz, and like the the women have heard the stories about what happens in the showers, and they've had their hair cut off and their clothes taken off, and they're screaming, they're terrified, and they go into the shower, and you just feel this horrible feeling of dread building up in you, and then the showers turning on, and it's actually just a shower, and mm. that is such a well handled scene because just as a viewer. When you find out that, I mean, you know that so many other people have died, but that these people who you've um, become fond of, you watch them in Schindler's Factory during the film and in the ghetto, and then they don't die, and then the shower heads opens, and it's like there's this incredible sense of relief that just floods your whole body. You feel like you've scored a victory almost. Yeah, and in less accomplished hands, that's just not going to play. You either, it's probably because you're never going to have got to quite that level of dread to have that incredible sense of relief afterwards. Mm. But yeah, it's just like Spielberg at the top of his game. It's, he's a very, very good filmmaker who occasionally um, lets his other sent- his sentimentality get the better of him. On occasion, he's an excellent filmmaker and I think this is probably his finest work. Mm. He's an excellent filmmaker who occasionally makes Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> yes, I think what we're saying though is that you should probably watch Schindler's List if you haven't. Yes, I mean, I definitely, well, to an extent I regret not having seen it sooner, but at the same time it is not something you're ever going to be in the mood to watch, I don't think. It is not a... It's not something when after a hard day's work you get home, put your feet up mm. and watch Schindler's List. Uh, no, that's yeah. You have to make a decision to watch a film like this. Yes, you have to bear very much in mind, make a very deliberate decision, but it's generally going to be rewarding if you do do that. Absolutely, yes. To make that decision. So that gets us on to the mist then. Something of an outlier on this list, much like your Mad Max colon Fury Road colon colon Chrome Edition colon colon colon. EX plus Alpha. The Mist is not strictly a black and white movie, albeit it was originally envisaged as such. Frank Darabont's first movie in six years, following 2001's The Majestic. Remember that? Nope, neither do I. The Mist was... I remember the name. That's yeah, it. exactly. Um, the Mist was adapted by the director from a Stephen King novella, the third occasion upon which he has proven want to do such a thing. Uh, refreshingly free of much in the way of exposition, the movie begins with a violent storm threatening to level a town in Maine. O- oddly enough, I say that with <laughs> supreme confidence, despite having no recollection of where this is actually set. <laughs> but I'm going to gamble that it's probably somewhere in Maine. Would you like to know how your gamble has turned out, Craig? Yes. 100% correct. Hey. Who would have thought it? <laughs> Won't earn me much on the accumulator. <laughs> the morning after which a dense mist rolls in off the nearby mountains and envelops the whole area. Locals panicked by the storm and resultant power cuts have descended upon the local supermarket. And when the mist reaches said premises, it becomes clear that this is no ordinary atmospheric suspension of water droplets. Um, and I don't just mean that technically this isn't a mist. It's a fog. But apparently that name was taken. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> yes, it soon transpires that there is something in the mist, 
We know this because a man with a bloodied face comes charging into the supermarket yelling, (laughs) there's something in the mist. This movie is subtle like that, from which point the evidence to support this mounts fairly rapidly. Yes, the mist is harbouring a grotesque diversity of seemingly alien life forms, all of which share a common evolutionary trait of being adept at maiming and consuming humans, albeit in some very inefficient ways that generally cause their victims a good deal of pain throughout their prolonged expirations. This movie is subtle like that. As the severity of their predicament grows increasingly clear, the besieged locals split into two camps. Those who see the scenario as the end of days and the coming of Space Disneyland, egged on by the increasingly unhinged Bible-thumping local spinster Mrs. Carmody, played by Marcia Gay Harden, and the people who aren't total f***ing idiots, headed up by (laughs) David Drayton, Thomas Jane, who is perhaps inexplicably inspired by everybody's favourite movie poster artist Drew Struzan. Our protagonist for the day... Drayton is visiting the mall with his young son Billy and antagonistic neighbour Brent, having earlier left his wife at home. Uh, Putting aside my feelings for Stephen King as an author, Darabont has shown something of a knack for retrofitting King's work to the screen, and The Mist is certainly at least as good a movie as The Green Mile. It does little new within the framework of the siege-slash-horror genre, though what it does, it does reasonably well. And the purpose of these movies is most often to place a mirror up to society as we watch the cast become a bigger danger to themselves than is posed by the outside threat. And on this occasion, Darabont's screenplay throws us an early racial curveball, followed up with a much firmer pitch at religious fundamentalism. It's a welcome sidestep towards a topic that fewer movies have broached than you might imagine, Um, although it's not really the case that The Mist is saying anything fundamentally new, insightful, or even all that thought-provoking. Its chief concern is, of course, being a bit creepy. And while I've never quite appreciated the creature design and effects work of the movie, this, my third viewing, and first stab at Darabont's preferred black-and-white conversion, has proven the most rewarding. Not least of all because the reduced palette draws attention away from that creature design and some distractingly subpar effects work that hampers the theatrical version. Um, aside from some decent performances from the likes of William Sadler, Jeffrey Dimon, Francis Sternhagen and the inimitable Toby Jones, see, I told you would come back to Toby Jones, the movie's best... And he's not beasting anyone, he's, he's, he's more like being beasted. He is beasting nobody and I would just like to make it clear that... Um, we will not be proceeding with that court case where I've lost myself now. Uh, the movie's best strength, and perhaps reason enough to view it if you've been sitting on the fence, is its wonderfully bleak denouement, for which Darabont had to play hardball with the studios and is the reason he ended up running to Weinstein. Uh, I recall upon my first viewing thinking how fantastically nihilistic it seemed for a mainstream <laughs> studio movie to embrace yeah. such a thing, and I was pleased to find it has lost little of that edge across the ensuing decade. And while it doesn't break new ground or rank as a particularly outstanding picture in most respects, there is nonetheless an appeal to the efficiency and economy with which the mist plies its trade. And while it isn't even necessarily all that recognisable as a Darabont joint, it is still, as I stated earlier, a markedly better movie than The Green Mile, a movie for which I have never understood the general reverence in which it seems to be held. If you like this kind of thing... You will like this thing. <laughs> it's, yeah. I think it's the most fun movie on this list. I'm not going to claim it has any great depth, certainly compared to Schindler's List, um, but it is nonetheless. Oh, you just don't a consider this to be of equal import? No, uh, I would take one slight issue with what you were saying in your description there. Of course, the the main uh, rational body of the Kirk was led off by Andre Broher in the early running and met a fairly grisly end. So <laughs> That much is true, yes. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, so I, 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 this is the first time I'd watched the black and white version here and 
it's actually the first time I've seen it since the cinema release. Mm. And while I suppose, yes, it does detract a little bit from the, the shonkier elements of the CG, it never actually bothered me all that much in the first instance. Because the CG stuff and the monsters are pretty much secondary for the reasons why I actually enjoyed the film, which mm-hmm. was largely the interaction between uh, Thomas Jane and the rest of his his crew and Marsha Gay Harden's uh, character, uh, which is perhaps one of the most interesting elements of it, and the actual creatures themselves, while nice in the fact that you don't get a lot of films that are either based on Cthulhu or Half-Life, <laughs> yeah. uh, are, are kind of partially the least of it, apart from allowing some some grisly deaths and just to kind of keep the keep the motivation going through and yeah the ending of course is a is a, a shocker and uh, glad to see that that's uh, still maintained in it and yeah it's just quite an enjoyable film and uh one that i have enough to watch again every couple of years i would have thought but then again as i say after i thought that coming out of the cinema on the first time and promptly forgot about it for 10 years um, <laughs> Nonetheless, I heartily enjoyed going back to it, and I'm sure at some point I will do so again another 10 years down the line, and I'm sure I'll enjoy it just as much then. Yeah, fun little project, and uh, one that I think turned out quite well. Yeah, um, I also hadn't seen it since the cinema, and I also don't recall the the effects weren't bothering me much then. Yeah, I mean, it was bad, but I don't remember it really (laughs) bothering me all that much, you know? Oh, it really really annoyed me. I've seen worse, and its budget was only $18 million. In 2007 money, that's not money for a film. <laughs> um, so really, I think they did a not-so-bad job. That's, that's um, coupons, basically. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it is, yeah. It's a fun film. Scott, you're spot on there. It's entertaining. The I do love, Craig, as you said, too, the, the really bleak ending, uh, which is something the director revised himself, and um, which amazingly Stephen King was actually happy about yeah. because he's quite well known for not liking what's been done. Stephen, Stephen King, who didn't like The Shining, <laughs> <laughs> approved Frank Darabont. So there you go. It's uh, yeah. So that that bleak ending that really appeals to me because uh, yeah, sometimes you want a happy ending, but this when every film is a happy ending, it becomes very very tiresome. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the reasons I like the end of Dogville quite so much. It's yeah, it's a B movie basically. <laughs> You mentioned Half Life is spot on, Scott. It does feel kind of like that, just sans the the G Man. Yeah. But it's uh, well, Half Life apparently inspired by the novella. Really? Yeah, apparently so. Mm-hmm. Interesting. There you go. Yeah. Even um, some other dimension and deep stuff you can see it happening. Yes. Yeah. And okay, Thomas Jane's not the world's greatest actor, but you know, compared to, for instance, how Dennis Quaid. much he's. <laughs> yeah, um, compared to Hitler, you things know. like Deep Blue Sea and The Punisher and stuff. <laughs> it would have been interesting uh, to see Ben Kingsley in that role. He's, you um, say he's not the most accomplished actor, and you see him, you see him struggling under the weight of the more emotional moments, such as the ending, for example. Mm. But he, he just about uh-huh. gets away with it. Yeah, he does a passable enough job, and again, because it's a B movie, I'm willing to let him away with yeah. that and and but, I, I don't want to second guess how anyone would react to being in yeah. that situation either <laughs> that's always important to him sometimes i look at a film where and there's a couple of points in this where somebody is is dying and it always looks ridiculous but then i find i catch myself and i find myself thinking about no it maybe it looks ridiculous because i'm used to seeing people die in film in a very specific way mm. i've not seen anybody die in real life 
because they've been shot or um, attacked by some sort of interdimensional demon monster. <laughs> Maybe that's more, reac- come, more accurate. Come. You know? you've, you've been out with us on a Saturday night in Falkirk. <laughs> I thought I said we weren't going to mention that again. There's no statute of limitations, the, the interdimensional portal, better known as Weatherspoons. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in terms of acting, though, for me, it stands out as Marsha Gay Harden. Oh, yeah. Um, who is, I mean, really, it's a stunning role because to make me genuinely despise a character so much mm. is incredible. She is truly, truly odious. And it does, um, it is satisfying when one? Toby Jones shuts her up as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, because uh, I genuinely want harm to come to this person. <laughs> And when harm comes to this person, I cheered. Uh, oh, yes, that was so Go satisfying. Uh, as for the black and white, this yeah has been done. It was done on the Blu-ray and DVD release after the cinema release. It was something, though, that Frank Darabont had always wanted to do. Uh, he was inspired by the... The good German. <laughs> <laughs> he was inspired by the likes of Night of the Living Dead and that sort of 1960s mm. black and white B-movie style, which apparently, according to Darabont at least, Stephen King had already been inspired by when he wrote it, so that came quite nicely full yeah, circle. Yeah, kind of makes sense in that context. And yeah, uh, I suppose the black and white does a little mask the perhaps not fantastic um, special effects work. For me, it just gives it, it makes it feel a bit more claustrophobic, mm. the black and white for me, um, because it, as I know that they're surrounded, they're in a supermarket surrounded in mist, but I remember that the colour one, you felt like, oh, they're just in the, the northeast United States somewhere, and, and the black and white, because you take so much of that information away, it feels more contained that they're in a smaller place. It's kind of hard to, to say exactly how that works, but for me, it just feels yeah. more. Yeah, claustrophobic, as again, is the word I would yeah, use. I know exactly what you mean. Um, and it seems to, it has a good effect on the film. It just makes it a bit more tense. And it's not the most tense I've ever felt watching a film, uh, because, well, not just because I'd seen it before, but that sort of film doesn't tend to make me jump or anything like that. Although, um, when some disgusting insect the size of a dog um, hits against the window, yeah, I don't like that so much, but <laughs> that's more my problem with insects. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's something I kind of wish had been in cinemas in black and white, actually, mm. to have let more people um, experience it because I get the feeling that not many people will have seen it in black and white, even if they bought the DVD. Yeah, if it'd been in cinemas only in black and white, I think they, it would have had a much greater impact that style. Indeed, indeed. Well, that's probably all we need to say about the mist. I think so. It did a good job. So, um, while they were making The Hudsucker Proxy, the Coen brothers had seen a film which showed a bunch of haircuts from the 1940s, <laughs> which is apparently the reason that they made The Man Who Wasn't There, which is <laughs> the thinnest of reasons for making a film I've possibly ever heard. Is that a fact? Yes. <laughs> what was this film? What was this film was that it? they saw? No, it, was, no, it wasn't. It was while they were filming the Hudsucker Poxy, they saw this poster that showed haircuts in the Oh, 1930s. a poster. I'm it, sorry, I thought... Yeah, it wasn't even a film. It was just a poster oh. for the night. But that was enough for them to create this Jesus. story of our 1940s um, California barber. Some of the posters these students have in their flats, eh? <laughs> and yeah, it's not down as an adaptation, really, so I don't know what the, the <laughs> Yeah, <that>. exactly. <laughs> 
Adapted from a poster of haircuts. It's a very niche category in the Academy Awards. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Um, oh, that's golden. Yes. And so, having been so wonderfully inspired by some um, coiffure... Um, <laughs> Corn Brothers decided to make a 1940s style modern day set in the 1940s film noir um, about a barber, as you do. Uh, you can never really accuse the Corn Brothers of being um, straight down the line and predictable. The, uh, the good hairman, if you will. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, I won't. Sorry. Sorry, but I won't. Uh, I'll get my coat. So, as for the plot of the film itself, it's 1949 in Santa Rosa in California. Billy Bob Thornton plays Ed Crane, a barber who doesn't really like to talk much, apart from a little voiceover in which he talks constantly. <laughs> he is married to Doris Frances McDormand, who is the bookkeeper of a department store, who's having an affair with Big Dave, played by James Gandolfini. And when the rather mild-mannered, quiet largely invisible Ed finds this out and then later finds out a way to advance himself by making money in the new dry cleaning world <laughs> he decides to blackmail Big Dave and well in the way of most film noirs that doesn't work out well and everything more or less goes to hell in a handbasket yeah, in a slightly uh, more quirky way in this one than most other noirs <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes indeed when he is confronted by Big Dave, who's worked out that it's Ed that's blackmailing him. Um, Big Dave ends up dead. Now, that is all fairly standard setup for a film noir. There's the the betrayed man, the accidental death, that sort of thing. Nothing out of the ordinary there. But when you start adding in nascent um, dry cleaning technology, <laughs> UFOs, um, <laughs> A decidedly much more modern-sounding defence attorney. Uh, UFOs again, because why not? And yes, an odd subplot about trying to kickstart the musical career of a friend's daughter. It's very much more Coen Brothers and less traditional film noir. It is sort of accurately film noir and completely unlike it at the same time, which is quite an impressive feat and part of the reason why Joe Coen won the Best Director Award at Cannes when this was released. I don't think it's really good enough to be winning Best Director Awards, but I certainly find it very entertaining. The voiceovers, which in the duration which in so many films would bother me, is appropriate in a film trying to ape so much um, film noir. And it certainly looks the part. I mean, very, very standard type of coverage, um, long depth of field, um, the lighting very... Well, it feels very kind of ordinary now, but in fact, it's just it's spot on for the time period. And so it really looks the piece. Um, once again, the working with Roger Deakins, and that's some of Roger Deakins' most uninspired work, but getting the nomination for the Oscar for Best Cinematography, probably valid just because he's done such a good job of um, convincing facsimile. Billy Bob Thornton is really entertaining with the exception perhaps of Sling Blade, probably never been better. He is a sad kind of pathetic person, but still managed to somehow be sympathetic despite all the things that happened to him. It's 
Notable too for a performance from a very young-looking Scarlett Johansson. And did I mention the UFOs? Because <laughs> I had entirely forgotten about them, but I've decided that all films just need a person randomly believing UFOs for no good reason in them. <laughs> and in fact, yes, now that I'm thinking about it, UFOs get mentioned all the way through, and I keep, keep finding things like ashtrays that look like UFOs. <laughs> uh, the Coen brothers are, are, as I say, not in any way predictable, and they do like to put their own spin on things. It's um, weirdly for um, filmmakers I like so much. It's not one of the films I would urge you to seek out as soon as possible if you've not seen it before. But for sake of Coen brothers' completion, completionism is that a word? <laughs> Completiosity. Yes, <laughs> for Coen brothers' completiosity. That one's definitely cromulent. <laughs> Thank you. It's worth checking out. Yeah, I don't want more to say about that. It's perhaps one of the less remarkable films we've talked about tonight because while it's evoking the era and trying to copy the style of the 1940s, it doesn't do it the same sort of hugely sort of accurate yet artificial way that the good German does. Yes, it's good, but perhaps unremarkable. I find this film entirely inscrutable. Uh, <laughs> it's I, I I don't remember seeing it. I'm reasonably sure I saw it at the cinema, and um, I've not seen I it since. you saw it with me, so yeah, I think so. so. That's 15 years, and basically forgotten pretty much everything about it. So, um, I wasn't really expecting what I got when I sat down in front of it because, <laughs> uh, like, I remember, oh yeah, this is a kind of neo noir thing, but it's not a neo noir. It's neo noir comedy, and it's got this really inscrutable central character who doesn't seem to really care about anything, who has seems to have almost no stakes in most of the film. I mean, he, I mean even when he gets screwed out of his uh, about $10,000 that he'd been blackmailing Big Dave for to give to this uh, huckster of a <laughs> dry cleaning yes, the, salesman. The great John Polito. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't seem to matter to him. He doesn't actually care because he, he came into this money so easily he was happy <laughs> enough just to let it go. And, and why is there UFOs? <laughs> why do they keep showing up? What's going why on? Why not, Scott? Why not? Why? It's like a. It, it's sort of. The best I can come up with is it's kind of like the thought process that went into doing the good German, except they're more easily distractible and keep going off and chasing shiny things. So yeah, it was, <laughs> when you start a new scene, it kind of starts up as though it's a proper scene from a, a noir and they're trying to kind of follow the, the tropes and the, the stylistics of it. And then they get a bit bored and go off and do something wacky and zany. And then, then the next scene, it will snap back to being sort of a proper noir again. And then it will just start going off the rails in a different direction. It's a very weirdly structured and unique film. Um, I probably enjoyed it more now than I did at the time, but it's it's just weird. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> strange it's, film. Um, you're saying about uh, Billy Bob Thornton having no stakes in it. It's, yeah, because, and there's a quote from a um, film critic for Time that said, affectlessness is not a quality much prized in movie protagonists, <laughs> but Billy Bob Thornton, that splendid actor, does it perfectly. And that's what, because it's... It's so unlike most, certainly most other Billy Bob Thornton roles, um, where <laughs> he's largely um, full of swagger, that Texan swagger. But he here he is um, he is so almost monotonous. But that's actually quite a difficult thing to pull off because it's not um, disinterest from him. It is a performance. It's not just like he turned up and couldn't be bothered with it. It's um, to maintain that level <laughs> of disinterest entirely in his own life because. He is the man of the title, the man who wasn't there. And in almost all respects, that's true. It's really rather interesting because, yes, you don't see many roles like that, many performances like that. It's very interesting. 
and very different from um, like uh, scenery chewing rules you might expect from other people. Yes, it's a very intense disinterest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, if you if you found it inscrutable, consider that I had I had no heads up on what this was whatsoever. Otherwise, other than that, um, I think at the time it, I, I rented it on the basis. Well, it's a Coen Brothers movie, and I understand that it's Coen's doing noir. Um, and I sat down to watch it late at night one night after I can't remember if it was after work or, but it's probably about eleven o'clock. I started watching it, which was folly in itself. And Billy Bob Thornton was cutting some hair, and I fell asleep. And I woke up, and there was a UFO. <laughs> it is no better explained had you seen the intervening bits of film. <laughs> so I've, I've essentially just got a heavily distilled um, <laughs> version of it then. So, and I've not had, I, I didn't have the opportunity to uh, to rewatch it in preparation for this podcast. So I've, I've kind of feel compelled to do that, but I'm not sure when I'll do it. And then listening to you guys talking about it now is like, is, is, is what you're saying. I'm, I'm generally torn between is that bumping it up my watch list or bumping it down my watch list? But yeah, think- it remains an enigma to me. And to me, I mean, seen it twice. <laughs> I, I, I think you should watch it because if nothing else, it'll give us something, someone else to try and make sense of it. As <laughs> we invite your theories. Um, I, I don't think it's it's in no way a boring or uninteresting film, and I think you would enjoy watching it. I just don't think you get to the end of it and kind of yeah. think, what on earth was that trying to say? And I don't think it was actually trying to say anything. And that's perhaps that's the point. <laughs> yes, I think that is part of the point. Also, remember, it is based on a film. Oh, sorry, based on a poster about haircuts. <laughs> I will keep all Don't of these things at the back Kane. of my mind. I shall endeavour. Um, I shall endeavour to uh, to watch it before next we speak. Then, uh, if I have a chance, depending on how long it takes to edit this bad boy down, uh, I will. I will try and watch it in the interim and uh, get back to you on that. Certainly. Yeah, and the other things it is impeccably acted pretty much by everyone on it it's a, a hell of a cast and they all do pretty well and it's possibly second only to uh, Good Night and Good Luck in the way that it looks I think um, wow. so they're a very pretty looking film um, yeah Virgil Deacons just um, has got it spot on for the era well Deacons is the gold standard isn't he basically mm-hmm. so yeah, it's fantastic. I expect nothing less <sighs> Gans Interessant uh, which leaves us I guess. With Lahane. These days, Matthew Kasowitz's 1995 outing of Lahane is perhaps best remembered for introducing the world outside of France to a fresh-faced Vincent Cassell. Fresh-faced enough for the then 28-year-old to be playing someone I at least interpreted as a late teens, early 20s Vins. He's an angry little boy, raging against the circumstances that sees him stuck in the impoverished Van Luz on the outskirts of Paris and specifically at the arrest and severe beating dealt out to his friend Abdel, as the police were dealing with a riot the night before, which seems to be a relatively frequent occurrence in the Banlus, certainly at this time period. Um, he is on his way with his friend Said, played by Said Tagmel, uh, to meet their marginally older friend and gym owner Hubert, Hubert Kunde. He is also a, smoked, a small-time drug dealer. But Hubert is the calm, collected, level-headed one of the trio, at least relatively speaking, uh, counselling that not all cops are automatically against them. Uh, Said's attitude sits halfway between the two, perhaps tending towards the opinion of whoever he's talking to at that moment. Uh, Lahane follows the trio as they start off on what's presented as a pretty typical day in the Banlu, uh, with Vince desperately trying to appear tough to ingratiate himself with the gangs that lord over the place, largely expressed through his wish to kill a cop in retaliation for the treatment of Abdul. 
the trio make plans to visit, visit Abdel in hospital, but before they head off to the city, Vince has something that he wants to show his compadres. In all of yesterday's kerfuffles, with the rioting and the violence, so uh, Vince has managed to get his mitts, his mitts on a handgun. It was left by a policeman. I believe his name was Chekhov. Hubert wants Vince <laughs> to leave the damn thing behind. <laughs> Slow there, Craig. Slow. I'm sorry, I'm too busy submitting <laughs> trivia for laying to IMDb. <laughs> Uh, Hubert wants Vince to leave the damn thing behind, knowing that it's dangerous enough in the right hands, let alone Vince's wannabe cop-killing ones, should Abdul not pull through. And off they go into the centre of Paris, where they both subvert and entirely justify the stereotypes of the miscreant troublemaking youths. Still, when Saeed and Hubert are picked up by the police, essentially for loitering, it's hard to see the police as being the good guys in this dynamic as they abuse, insult, beat and humiliate the boys, seemingly only as a demonstration exercise to teach a new cop how to be an asshat. Released, but having missed the last train home, the night stretches out for them to doss about, but hearing the news that Abdel has died in the hospital has infuriated them. Things look hairy after a run-in run in with a group of skinheads that had earlier insulted from a safety of a rooftop, although they get the upper hand once Vince pulls out his hand cannon. Uh, he threatens to kill one of the skinheads as a stand-in for the cops that he's sworn a vendetta against, but Hubert manages to talk some sense into him and in the process tear down the tough guy gangster wannabe act that Vince has been trying to run with, uh, proving that there's light at the end of the tunnel for him. Unfortunately for Vince, as half-man, half-biscuit would tell us, the light at the end of the tunnel is a light of an oncoming train. And look away now if you don't want to hear the results. One of the <laughs> more obnoxious cops shows up as they return home in the morning and, accidentally, shoots and kills Vince. Hubert, who'd earlier taken Vince's gun off him for safekeeping, pulls it on the cop. It fades to black. There's a gunshot. Who wins? Most likely, no one. It's a powerful ending, but a bit of a bolt from the blue. I'm sure it's not far off how you might expect this would end, given the first mm -hmm. half hour or so, uh, but I'd rather hope that it would subvert that expectation, given that it does a pretty effective job of developing the characters, at least certainly Vince's, uh, over the course of the piece. It doesn't seem like his story should end this way, and not just because there's no reason whatsoever for the cop to do what he does, apart from as a means to force this ending. Um, it's, impactful. it's a bit drama, Bonnie. Yeah, that, um, that last moment. Yeah, it, it kind of falls apart in analysis. I think it's it's kind of counting on you being out the door before you can think about it because this really is the last like what minute of film. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. And it's not like that ending really fits with the tone of the rest of the film either. Well, admittedly, the description that I've given it, which is just the essential facts of the film, sounds pretty grim and gritty, and sections of it are. But a lot of this film is really quite enjoyably light, light hearted. Uh, yeah, it's a kind of a bunch of friends arsing about together, really, yeah. isn't it? Uh, and, and perhaps that's to the detriment of the parts where it's aiming at, you know, something between the four hundred blows and scum. But there is a twist of surrealism throughout that I just enjoyed being baffled about. I do not know. <laughs> like the drunk guy where they're trying to steal the car is fantastic. Yeah, and and I don't know why there's a cow wandering around that only Vince can apparently see. <laughs> and I'm as baffled as the lads are by the old geezer's monologue in the public bathroom. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Yes, that's fantastic too. Um, it's so left field. Yes, it's out of nowhere. Um, uh, Matthew Kasovitz shows a lot of potential in the Hane, which does not appear to have been fully realised. Uh, one could argue that the definite plus that this film puts in his column in no way matches the minus of Gothica. Uh, but at least he's finding semi-regular work as an actor, uh, notably appearing in certified FUDs on film favourite Amelie. 
Yeah. Sorry, Scott, before you finish, just when you mentioned Gothica, is Gothica the film with Halle Berry where um says, I don't believe in ghosts, but the ghosts believe in you? In me, I think it was, but yes, yeah, yes. that's the one. Yes, yeah. okay, that's possibly one of the dumbest lines I've ever heard. Yeah. So thank you for bringing that back to memory. <laughs> Uh, so, is this the defining document of disaffected mid-90s French youth? As it's the only one I think I've seen, I suppose for me it is by default. <laughs> Although, how true this was to the facts on the grounds, I can only guess at. Certainly it feels authentic, while being a vibrantly told and likeable character piece, even in the moments where the characters are not being all that likeable themselves. Um, this is another one of the films that I hadn't seen before preparing for this podcast, and while it's not the obvious classic the way that something like Schindler's List is, uh, I certainly enjoyed my time with this film and would be happy to recommend it to anyone looking for some urban commentary along with an absorbing little character piece. Yeah, it's it does do a good job of, of selling the idea of this or these disaffected youths. The anger and frustration and sense of unfairness and injustice and impotence in these characters particularly Vince is just so well portrayed mm. it's so believable yeah, I mean even we discard the fact that Vincent Cassell is playing someone 10 years younger than he ought to be that sort of feeling of not teenage angst but growing up where he's grown up and seeing what's happening on the state where he lives and the the things that are happening to his friends his anger and all those other emotions feel authentic, believable, and appropriate. And then, but with the other bits, like you mentioned, Scott, with like the the play between the friends and it maybe disregard the cows, which is this film's UFOs, but <laughs> it's it does make them rounded and human. And you realize that the people growing up in these estates aren't different from people anywhere else who've just had been dealt a shitty hand. They just want to go with life. And while I don't know if I really wanted this film to subvert the expectations of where it was going certainly that's really the one bum note for me in this yeah. it's th that something was going to happen with a gun it seemed obvious whether it was Vince himself going to do something or something was going to happen to someone and that tension is there throughout and yeah. it's really it's it's almost unbearable at points particularly when it gets to when Matthew Katowicz himself appears as the skinhead that Vince can't bring himself to kill and right building up to that and this tension that something is going to happen because the friend has now died and I'm like, oh right okay what's what's going to happen here and then it goes to that bit like, oh right okay maybe maybe everything's okay and then it just for me undermines that a bit by just the manner in which what happens happens because I don't know if it's to me it looked like it was an accident it seems to be but it's so much of a drama bomb when that police officer's gun goes off yeah it felt so inauthentic where everything else was believable that felt forced it feels very much dropped in it, it, it yeah. doesn't feel like it belongs organically with the rest of the film at all which is a yeah. bit of a misstep i think yes i don't know whether that's bad judgment or maybe somebody else suggested it although it's not really sort of they got a sort of budget for normal studio interference i think or whether it's just which has happened many times in history that the author simply didn't know how to finish his story it's possible it does take the shine off the rest of the film a little unfortunately but that said it's it's the one real low note in the film otherwise it's very compelling and vincent cassell is very powerful in this film and does that conclude our broadcast day? We do have a couple of mentions um, on Twitter to bring to your attention. Cool. 
our good friend Superfan um, that we're super pleased to hear from Matt Toller at M Toller on Twitter mentions first of all no Clarks well no for reasons we mentioned at the beginning talking about the mist he says the mist benefits quite a bit from its black and white treatment if memory serves but that's more because it masks dodgy CGI oh, hey thank you Matt um, he says just rewatched Pi appropriately gritty and black and white but I found it more of an artifact of Darren Aronofsky's promise as a director than anything which is not an unreasonable thing to suggest the first time I saw that tweet I thought DA stood for district attorney and it confused me (laughs) briefly but it worked out in the end And good night and good luck. I just wish David Strathairn showed up more often. That's mirroring your um, sentiments, mm-hmm. Craig. Didn't seem to get his deserved promotion after good night and good luck. Uh, and we'd all agree with that one, I think. Yeah, definitely. And a bit of feedback from someone who isn't Matt, um, just to change things a little. Leslie Tavendale at Nibley underscore 81 on Twitter said Schindler's List is a very moving film. It is brilliantly acted, directed and written. It is a stunning piece of cinematography. I don't think you'll get any arguments here, Leslie. No. Nope. So mercifully, that brings us to the end of this one, <laughs> Fun Zone Film Podcast. Uh, as <laughs> always, please, please get in touch with us. Uh, voice your views. Tell us why we are wrong. And we will graciously disagree with you on Twitter at Fuds on Film, on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Fuds on Film, or by the old standard of emails as podcast at Fuds on Film. And yes, yeah, so we'll be back on the 10th with a look at The Prestige and The Illusionist. Uh, so join us for that. But until then, I will bid you adieu. I have been Scott Morris, and I'm sure I will be joined in wishing you a good day by Drew Davendale. Hasta la próxima. And Craigie Smith. Always bet on black. <laughs> you never really get enough Passenger 51 references well, into any podcast, guy. Passenger 57, but. 57. Uh, okay, close enough. <laughs> I can't believe you forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, man. Hey. Hey.